custard tarts, cherry liqueur, and soulful fado music. This week, we're in Lisbon, Portugal. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson, host of Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week we visit a different city and taste the dishes and drinks that make it unique and fun things to do there. This week, make sure your calves are in shape because we're climbing the seven hills of Lisbon. Lisbon used to be an under-the-radar destination, but thanks to cheap airfares and lots of rave reviews, it's now on everyone's travel list. But never fear, there's still some under-the-radar spots to enjoy, and the food is still less expensive than the rest of Western Europe, so let's eat. What to eat? Hey, you gonna finish that? On Destination Eat Drink. I've just redesigned the entire DestinationEatDrink.com website. Check it out. Let me know what you think. There's lots more great dishes, beverages, and things to do in Lisbon at DestinationEatDrink.com. The Pastel de Nada is by far the most popular pastry in Portugal, and it's got a fascinating history, too. Monks at a monastery in the Bellum section of Lisbon used egg whites to starch their habits. As a result, they had all of these egg yolks left over. And starting in the 18th century, the monks used these leftover yolks to make a creamy, custard-like pastry, the famous pastel de nada. When the monastery ended up closing, the monks sold the recipe to a local sugar refinery, and the owners of the refinery opened up a bakery, the Fabrica de Pastes de Bellum. In 1837, that bakery started churning out these delicious custard tarts, and to this day, the bakery is still run by descendants of the first owner. Now, living in Rhode Island for many years, I was familiar with St. Anthony, or as I should say, I was familiar with the superstitions about St. Anthony. Many friends, both religious and non-religious, would pray to St. Anthony if they lost something. Lose your car keys? A chorus of pray to St. Anthony would ring out. And if you were trying to sell your house in Rhode Island, tradition dictate that you should bury a small St. Anthony statue upside down in the yard. This was said to ensure that the house would be sold quickly. I know plenty of otherwise sensible Rhode Islanders who swear by this cultural oddity. Since Rhode Island has a huge population of Italian-Americans and everyone has a cousin Anthony or an Uncle Tony, I just assumed St. Anthony was an Italian saint. But then our friend Mariana took us to Pastelleria Santo Antonio for breakfast. Turns out St. Anthony was originally born in Lisbon. He went to school there. He studied at a monastery in Coimbra, Portugal. He later lived and worked in both Italy and France. But St. Anthony is the patron saint of Lisbon. And June the 13th is St. Anthony's feast day in Lisbon. On the day before, June 12th, outdoor stalls are crammed with potted basil plants, a traditional gift by men to their loved ones. And then that evening, 
there are parades and everyone indulges in sardines, which are prepared on grills on every block in Lisbon. The 12th and 13th are both huge party days in Lisbon. And if you're planning on going, and you should, it's a lot of fun, you should book ahead because hotels sell out well in advance of St. Anthony's feast day. As far as the food at St. Anthony's Bakery, the pastel de natas have been voted the best in Lisbon. That's a huge accomplishment. It's like being the best pizzeria in Naples. And for good reason. They're light and creamy. And if you're lucky enough to get them right out of the oven, they are about the best thing on the planet. People from Lisbon will happily argue about who makes the best pastéis de nata. My vote goes to Pastelaria Santo Antonio, but there are plenty of devotees of pastéis de bellum, and many guidebooks will steer you towards Mantegaria, who also makes a great pastel de nata. And if you want a vegan version, there's one of those too. Terra makes a vegan version of the pastel de nata. No doubt about it, Portuguese cuisine is heavy on the meat and fish, and this can sometimes make it challenging for vegetarians, but more and more vegetarian restaurants have opened recently in Lisbon, and Portugal's northern Douro Valley supplies tons of fresh and tasty produce that makes vegetarian meals top-notch. My number one spot for veggie dining is AO26 Vegan Food Project. They offer what might be thought of as quote-unquote typical vegetarian fare, like quinoa salads with lots of veggies, but AO's menu is much more extensive than that. AO26 has vegan versions of the famous Francesina and Bafina sandwiches. But the star of the show is the Seitan steak with roasted potatoes. Up until the day I visited AO26, I was not a big fan of Seitan. I'd eaten it, but it usually had a grainy texture that I found off-putting. Somehow, the chef at AO26 created a dish that not only did away with the grainy mouthfeel of Seitan, but also created a quote-unquote steak that's as close to real animal flesh as anything I've ever tasted. AO26, highly recommended. Portugal's mild climate and abundant rainfall in the north makes for ideal growing conditions for many fruits and vegetables, and this bounty is on display at Lisbon's best markets. My favorite is Mercado da Baixa. While the area around the market can be crowded with tourists visiting the Santa Justa Lift and Rocio Square, the Mercado da Baixa is packed with locals on their lunch hour from nearby office buildings. Portuguese cheeses don't have the popularity of Spanish cheeses, but that doesn't mean they're lacking. One of my favorites is the queijo de agito, a cheese made from raw sheep's milk. It's a protected designation of origin product, or a PDO, and queijo de agito can only be produced in the area around the town of agito. The cheese is soft on the inside with a slightly waxy edible rind, and if you smell Queijo di Egito, you might be led to think that this is a mild cheese, but whoa, when you taste it, barnyard floor. Just the kind of flavorful cheese that I love. And a unique thing about Queijo di Egito is that most producers don't use rennet to make the cheese curds. Instead, many makers of Queijo di Egito use cardoon, a thistle, to bring the cheese together. 
For the people of Lisbon, seafood is a huge part of their diet. Octopus, sardines, clams, they all make regular appearances on plates. But bacalhau is by far the most popular dish. It's strange that bacalhau became so popular in Portugal because the fish doesn't swim in the waters nearby. And the Portuguese were expert sailors. You'd think that the fishermen would just grab the fish that are nearby in the waters of the Atlantic. But That's not what happened. Instead, the sailors were finding cod plentiful in the cool waters near Newfoundland and the North Atlantic. And bacalhau was salted and dried, which allowed it to be preserved for months at a time. Perfect for these long sea voyages the Portuguese were taking. Today, they say there's 365 recipes for bacalhau one for each day of the year. And the most popular in Lisbon is bacalhau a bras. To prepare the dish, the salted cod is soaked overnight and shredded with onions and shredded potatoes fried and an egg added to the cod, potato, and onion mixture. Olives are often added as a garnish. And bacalhau a bras is so popular, you can find it in almost any family-style restaurant, especially in the Barrio Alto, where the dish supposedly originated. But once again, the timeout market is a great place to get this classic dish. Chef Miguel Castro Silva has several restaurants in Lisbon, but his at the timeout market is one of the best for bacalao abras. Want to drink? I'll have another on Destination Eat Drink. Get the Destination Eat Drink podcast delivered directly to your phone, computer, or tablet directly by subscribing at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, or at radiomisfits.com. And there's links to every episode of the podcast archived at destinationeatdrink.com. Just click on the podcast tab. There's a wide range of options when looking for a beverage in Lisbon. Excellent and little-known wines are everywhere, and Lisboetas are spoiled with options when it comes to coffee and cafes. But a tiny cup of ginginha from a closet-sized bar is some of the most fun you can have in Lisbon. Ginginha is served in a little plastic shot glass and usually costs about one and a half euro, and Getting a ginginha is a cheap way to have some fun. Ginginha is made by adding cinnamon, sugar, and sour cherries to brandy. The drink was invented by a friar at the Church of St. Anthony in Lisbon. He added sour cherries to brandy. He shared the recipe with a Galician man named Esfinira, who perfected the recipe by taking the brandy and the cherries and adding the sugar and the cinnamon. Esfinira opened the Ginginha Esfinira Bar in 1840, and today this place is now known as A Ginginha, still in business. Don't expect to come in, sit down, get a menu, order a drink and some food. This bar is nothing like that. It's really just a counter that opens up into the square with bartenders pouring shots of the sweet drink into tiny plastic cups. Get yours with or without the cherry and stand outside with the locals and tourists enjoying the sweet elixir. And just a couple minutes walk away, also in Baja, is another characteristic Jinjinha bar. This one is called Jinjinha Sem Rival. 
They've been in business since 1890. Give both a Jinjinya and Jinjinya Sem rival a try. Everyone has their own favorite. And if you talk to Lisboetas who are middle-aged or older, they'll likely tell you about how their parents and grandparents would give them a little shot of Jinjinya to cure everything from the common cold to a sore throat. The second largest winemaking region in Portugal is around Lisbon. The first largest is in the Douro Valley, and many of the vineyards in the Lisboa wine region are small farms that sell their grapes to co-ops for Portuguese table wines. But there's also some regions that make fine wine as well. When you're looking to buy a bottle, look for the DOC classification on the bottle. This indicates the wines have been tested and tasted and the grapes have been grown in certain geographic regions that are particularly good for winemaking. There are several other designations for Portuguese wine. IPR is just under DOC in prestige. And the next classification is Vino Regional. This is sometimes listed as IG or IGP on the bottles. And you shouldn't think of Vino Regional grapes or wines as less than some of the other bottles. It's often just that they're in lesser known regions and they use lesser known grape varieties that are still delicious. Because Lisbon's suburbs are expanding outwards, many vineyards have been plowed under to make room for expensive housing in the countryside. But some areas like Bucillus have expanded grape production. Bucillus is known for white wines, especially those made with Arinto grapes. These are nice acidic whites and they often have notes of citrus and won't bust your budget. If you're looking for a bottle of red wine from around the Lisbon area, look for bottles from Aruda or Alencourt. The vineyards near Lisbon in the Calares DOC region are especially interesting because they are planted in sand. And you may not know this, but almost all of the European vineyards were wiped out by something called phylloxera, an aphid that absolutely devastated European vineyards. And what did the Europeans do when they lost all their vines? They took American rootstock and planted it in Europe. You might not realize that most of the European wine that you drink today actually comes from American rootstock. One of the few exceptions is in Calaris, where they plant their vines in sand. Phylloxeria aphids cannot live in sand. So these are some of the few vines that are actually from original European rootstock. But what the phylloxera couldn't kill, sprawl has. 98% of the vines under cultivation have been removed for suburban construction. So if you see a bottle of Calaris DOC, jump on it. One of my favorite places to do a wine tasting in Lisbon is at Lisbon Winery in Barrio Alto. The funky atmosphere has a cool cellar with a small transparent floor. You look down, you see a pit filled with wine corks. The owner of Lisbon Winery, Adriana, is super knowledgeable about Portuguese wines and is happy to answer all your questions. They also have a great selection of cheeses to pair with your wine selection. Karen and I were sitting there, and I noticed a bottle displayed on the shelf in which there was a perfect cut 
right across the neck of the bottle. I asked our server, and she explained that the tradition was to open a bottle of vintage port by heating the neck and using a pair of tongs to open it rather than by removing the cork. I asked her if she had a pair of those tongs at the winery, and she came back a few moments later holding this huge tool, looked like something you would use to tend a fire, which in a way I guess you were. Super cool, but I think a corkscrew would be much more convenient. If you want to see a picture of both the bottle with the perfect cut and this giant pair of tongs, go to DestinationEatDrink.com, click on Portugal and Lisbon. When having a pastel de nata, there's nothing better to complement it than an espresso, or as it's known in Lisbon, uma bica. Coffee's been in Portugal for centuries, ever since the imperial Portuguese brought coffee plants to colonies like Angola, Cape Verde, and especially Brazil. Today, Portuguese-speaking Brazil is far and away the largest exporter of coffee beans in the world. And you can get an excellent Uma Bica at many Lisbon bakeries, like Bakery St. Anthony. But a highlight of a trip to Lisbon is a stop at Café e Brasileria. In the early 1900s, coffee, although it had been in Lisbon for centuries, wasn't especially popular. In 1905, Adriano Teles aimed to change that by importing and selling Brazilian coffee at his shop called A Brasileria. Customers who bought a bag were treated to a free cup, Uma Bica. Shortly thereafter, a cafe was added, which became a meeting place for intellectuals, poets, and revolutionaries who were working to move Portugal from a monarchy to a modern government. One of the most famous of these was Fernando Pessoa. His poem, The Message, is famous throughout Portugal, and now Fernando permanently sits outside the cafe in the form of a bronze statue. Inside, the Art Deco Café is now mostly filled with tourists and students, but the striking atmosphere is still a great place for Uma Bica. Portugal is also a big almond-producing country, and the northeast region of Portugal is where the majority of the country's almonds are grown. Sweeter varieties of almonds are sold for snacking, but the region also grows a famous bitter almond. They're not popular for eating raw or roasting, so many of the bitter almonds grown here are distilled into a liquor called emendoa. Amandoa has a golden color and slightly sweet taste with vanilla and nuts. And at 20% alcohol by volume, Amandoa isn't meant to be chugged. Instead, a small glass is often offered as a digestif. Sometimes you'll see Amandoa used as a topping for ice cream. That's a great way to enjoy it. And if you've ever had Amaretto from Italy, you've tasted a similar drink, but most of the commercial amaretto in Italy today is made from peach pits rather than the traditional bitter almonds. Things to do and places to see. I don't know. What do you want to do? On Destination Eat Drink. Have a question or a comment about Destination Eat Drink? Find me on Facebook at Destination Eat Drink or Twitter at Eat Destination or click on the contact tab at Destination Eat Drink. On the morning of Saturday, November 1st, 1755, most of the citizens of Lisbon were in church. It was All Saints Day, after all, and at 9.40, a catastrophe struck. 
an earthquake measuring an estimated 9.0 on the Richter scale, the strongest earthquake ever recorded in Europe, shook the city for five minutes, opening 16-foot-wide crevices and starting a massive fire. Then a tsunami crashed into the city, killing even more people. When the shaking stopped and the fire was put out, Lisbon was in ruins. Some estimate 100,000 people were killed. Parts of the city survived, namely Bellum, but for people of Lisbon, a long rebuilding project lay ahead. And because of this focus, Portugal's imperial ambitions to expand its empire were put to rest. The Portuguese did a lot of collective soul-searching after the quake. Some wondered if the devastation was some kind of divine retribution for Portugal's sins of empire-building and enslavement. But Voltaire, the French author, wrote a poem on the disaster in Lisbon in 1756, the year after the quake, and in it he disagrees with the sins of Portugal explanation for the natural disaster. He said, What crime, what sin, had those young hearts conceived that lie bleeding and torn on mother's breast? Did fallen Lisbon deeper drink of vice than London, Paris, or sunlit Madrid? That's Voltaire. The only tangible remnant of the quake in the center of Lisbon is the Carmo Convent. Built in the late 14th and early 15th century, the Gothic church had over 100 clerics housed on the grounds and an extensive library with over 5,000 volumes at the time of the earthquake. But that earthquake destroyed the library and severely damaged the church and the order abandoned it. The site remained unrestored and uninhabited until it became the Carmo Archaeological Museum. There's a small museum inside. It's relatively interesting. But the real attraction is the church, whose roof was never rebuilt, and ruins stand as a reminder of that terrible morning in 1755. Fado is the soul or folk music of Lisbon. A singer is accompanied by a 12-string guitar player or two and a couple other string instruments like an 8-string bass. The 12-string guitar gives the melancholy of the music that really accompanies nicely the singing. Modern Fado can also have percussion, piano, and other instrumentation. Fado literally translates to fate or destiny, but it also means a longing. Fado's been compared to American blues music because of depressing subject matter in both genres, although musically they don't have a lot in common. To give you an idea, Portuguese writer Manuel de Mello called Fado a pleasure you suffer, an ailment you enjoy. Sounds just like a description of the blues music, right? Fado originated in Lisbon in the first half of the 1800s and was often sung in bars frequented by the people residing on the lower rungs of society, folks like sailors or prostitutes. In fact, the first singer of Fado was Maria Severa, a singer and guitarist who was also a prostitute. She died of tuberculosis in 1846 at just 26 years of age. The legend of Severa grew through novels, plays, and films about her life, and today the site of Maria's house is a place where you can actually see Fado performed. 
If you want to see Fado performed live in Lisbon, you can go to a Fado house. These places often provide an intimate experience, but you'll likely need to purchase dinner to see the show. It's not too, too expensive, but if you wander a neighborhood like Barrio Alto, you'll often see signs outside bars advertising Fado. This is usually a less expensive way to see Fado, though many of the best singers still reside at the Fado houses. There's also an excellent Fado museum in Lisbon. The good folks at the museum often schedule Fado performances at their museum and other locales around the city. I'll have a link in the show notes to the museum's website. Lisbon is filled with great neighborhoods, and Barrio Alto is probably the most famous, and for good reason. This is where locals and tourists come to party. It's filled with bars and restaurants, and there's something for every taste, especially if that taste involves staying out late. One of my favorite places in Barrio Alto is the Old Pharmacy. It's housed in, of course, an old pharmacy, but instead of pills and elixirs, the glass cabinets are filled with old wine bottles and guitars, and instead of compounds and cotton balls, big glass jars are filled with old corks. Tables and chairs are converted wine barrels, and the waitstaff wears white jackets, making them look like pharmacists from olden times, adding to the charming atmosphere. In addition to a great selection of Portuguese wines, the old pharmacy has a nice selection of pesticos. Those are Portuguese snacks or small plates. Old pharmacy, highly recommended. There's also the fashionable Chiado district with Chiado Square at its center. This is the bohemian heart of Lisbon, and this is where you'll find Café A Brasileria, which I talked about earlier. For many years, Chiado was home to Lisbon's favorite poet, Antonio Ribeiro, who was given the nickname Chiado. This translates to squeak, and in turn, he gave his name to the neighborhood. There's a statue of Ribeiro in Chiado Square showing him with his arm raised as if the satirist is telling an amusing story. Karen and I were climbing flight after flight after flight of stairs from a lower area of Lisbon up to an upper area. At 192 steps, yes, I counted, a place caught my eye. Truthfully, Starbucks would have caught my eye at that point. I was so sick of climbing stairs, but this place looked good. Karen agreed, and we abandoned our upward march for a table at a place called the Little Wine Bar. The name's appropriate. The little place has about five tables and a tiny bar area, and the space is so cramped that you're elbow to elbow with the folks at the table next to you, but that only adds to the charm of the place. The couple next to us were from Abruzzo, Italy. They spoke a little English, and with our rudimentary Italian, we had a lovely conversation. The owner of the little wine bar is very knowledgeable. He selected a few vintages for us, and they were right on the mark. The food is pretty darn good as well at the little wine bar. The city's grandest square is Commerce Square, and this area, including the Royal Palace, was reduced to rubble in the 1755 earthquake. King Jose I, Joseph I, became emotionally incapacitated after the natural disaster and developed a case of claustrophobia, never again living within the confines of the city. Instead, Jose I's prime minister, the Marquis de Pombal, 
was tasked with the massive rebuild of Lisbon. And if you go to Commerce Square, you'll see a statue of Jose I. But instead of facing the city of Lisbon, the city that he was in charge of, he's facing the river, which symbolizes the king turning his back on the people of the city. The neighborhood of Belem gets its name from the Portuguese word for Bethlehem, and it has some of the most popular and iconic attractions in all of the city. You'll want to spend at least a half a day there to see everything. My recommendation is to get an early start. The riverfront along the Tagus River is concrete and mostly treeless and gets pretty hot. The best way to get to Belem is by taking the number 15 tram, If you want to hop on and hop off the tram, the best thing to do is get the Via Via Gem card. It's good for 24 hours of rides on public transportation, and if you make a few stops along the way, it definitely pays for itself. I've got a list of tons of fun things and cool sights to see in Bellum at DestinationEatDrink.com, including the famous April 25th Bridge, the bridge that many people think looks like the Golden Gate Bridge. All that's available at DestinationEatDrink.com. I'll just tell you about a few of my favorite and most popular places in Bellum. The ornate Gothic Geronimos Monastery was built in the early 16th century with money from taxes on imported goods from Portugal's far-flung empire. And it's easy to see how powerful Portugal was during this time by just looking at the facade of the church. It might take a whole lifetime to inspect each of the beautifully carved figures and fanciful designs on the facade. Inside is the tomb of Vasco da Gama and a maritime museum. The Lisboa card gets you free admission to the Hieronymus Monastery. Now, you may ask how the Hieronymus Monastery is still standing if it was built in the early 1500s and an earthquake leveled Lisbon 250 years later. Well, the reason is because Bellum is the one area of Lisbon that was basically untouched by the earthquake. Another iconic spot in Bellum, just across the street, literally from the Hieronymus Monastery, is the Fabrica de Pastis de Bellum. They're the ones who started selling pastel de nata in 1837. It's the most famous place to get a pastel de nata, and the lines can be long, but some folks from Lisbon call these the best pastel de natas in the city. Either way, it's definitely worth a stop. The Monument to the Discoveries was built as a temporary structure during the Portuguese World Exhibition in 1940, but was destroyed in 1943. It was only intended to be temporary, after all. A permanent Monument to the Discoveries was constructed from 1958 until it was unveiled in 1960 and was based on this original temporary structure. The new Monument to the Discoveries was dedicated in 1960 to commemorate the 500th anniversary of the death of Henry the Navigator. The massive structure depicts the bow of a Portuguese sailing ship with 33 statues of famous Portuguese navigators, political figures, and royalty headed by Henry the Navigator. Surprisingly, to me at least, Vasco da Gama receives a subordinate position on the eastern side of the monument. If you like, you can stand in line and buy a ticket to go to the very top of the Monument of the Discoveries. But 
it takes a while and even though the view is very nice, I prefer going to the Mott, which is a nearby modern structure with a curved ramp that leads to the roof and also offers excellent views from the monument down Belem and back to the bridge. And best of all, that view is free. Tips and inside information on Destination Eat and Drink. I like talking about and writing about the food and beverages that I sample from around the world. And when I'm not doing that, I write fiction. Check out my foodie novel, Truffle Hunt, and That Bird, my collection of short stories at DestinationEatDrink.com. Just click on the About and Books tab. Lisbon is often compared to San Francisco, and for good reason. Both cities have lots of hills. Both cities have suffered devastating earthquakes, and both are known for their iconic bridges. Both also have charming cable cars, except in Lisbon, they're not called cable cars, they're called trams. The tram system first began operation with horse-drawn cars in 1873. The lines were electrified in 1901 and 1902, and coverage was expanded over time to a peak of 24 routes in the 1950s. But when Lisbon's bus and metro system came along, it diminished the importance of the trams, and the system has shrunk to the current six tram lines. But these trams are still popular with locals and tourists, because they are so charming and picturesque. Tramline 28 is one of the best for tourists. It runs through the picturesque Alfama district, but this tram is also the most crowded and pickpockets target tourists. If you ride the 28, zip up your valuables, keep your bag or purse close to your chest, not on your back. Cameras have been known to be stolen by thieves cutting the strap with a knife. The Tram 15 line is also popular because it takes passengers out to the Bellum section, which is relatively far from the center of town. This tram is modern and lacks some of the charm of the older carriages, but if you're going to Bellum, this is definitely the way to get there. But once again, pickpockets are frequent on this tram. You can buy your tickets on board. One ride is three euro, but a 24-hour pass covering trams, buses, metros, funicular, even the Santa Justa lift is only six euro 40. That's a bargain if you're planning on using public transportation. The only thing to know is you have to purchase your pass at a metro station. You can't buy it on the tram if you're getting a 24-hour pass. The Seven Hills of Lisbon is a real thing, and while the terrain makes for lovely vistas and charming winding streets, all the climbing gets old real fast. That's why you have to be smart about getting around to Barrio Alto or any of the other neighborhoods in the city. Taking a taxi or a tuk-tuk, which is an expensive glorified golf cart, is one way to avoid the steep climb to Barrio Alto, but smart tourists do like the locals and jump on a funicular. Except in Lisbon, they're not called funiculars normally. They're called elevators. They're not really elevators. They're just cars of trains that run up a single track straight up a hill. Elevator da Gloria's little streetcar runs from Restaurandores Square to Barrio Alto in a couple of short Instagram-worthy minutes. The cost of a single ticket is €2.90, but getting the Viva Via Gem card saves 50%, and 
holders of the Lisboa card ride for free. There's also a couple others, the Bica Vinicular and the Elevator do Lavra. The most famous way to get from Lower Lisbon to Upper Lisbon is the Santa Justa Lift. This is an actual elevator connecting Baixa with Carmo Square. And because of its beauty, Santa Justa has become a huge tourist attraction. It's incredibly crowded at all times of day and night with people waiting in line for hours just to get a ride. In my opinion, the ride isn't worth the wait. Instead, take the Elevator de Gloria and then it's a short walk along the picturesque streets of Barrio Alto to the top of the Santa Justa lift. From here, you can access the same view without waiting in the ridiculous line below. There's lots of great day trips from Lisbon, including Sintra, which is probably the most popular. It's just a quick train ride from Lisbon, and a good day trip will involve seeing the palace and the Moorish castle at Sintra. Evora is also a good day trip. It's only 90 minutes from Lisbon by train. Evora escaped the 1755 earthquake, so you can see Roman ruins and a 12th century Gothic church and the macabre Chapel of Bones, which is decorated with the remains of deceased Avorians from at least 500 years ago. But I think a great way to experience Portugal is by taking the train from Lisbon to Coimbra, which is about a two-hour ride. You'll be dropped at Coimbra B Station, and you might be tempted to try and walk from the Coimbra B Station into downtown Coimbra, but Instead, take the Coimbra B station train to the A station and avoid the uphill slog to the city. In Coimbra, you can see the oldest university in Portugal, and the city has a lively atmosphere if school is in session. Coimbra is also home to a unique style of fado. Uh, here, the men sing the songs rather than the women. From Coimbra, you can continue on the train to Porto, which is worth several days on its own. For more on Porto, check out episode 46 of the podcast. So what's the best way to experience Portugal? In my opinion, unless you're a beach person, give up the beaches in South Portugal, start in Lisbon, and then go to Coimbra for a day or half a day and continue up to Porto. You can do this in a week. I think Lisbon deserves a minimum of four days. You could probably do it in two if you really tried. And then maybe half a day or a day in Coimbra, and then three days in Porto with a day trip to the Douro Valley. You could do this with a week's vacation wrapped around a couple of weekends. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Destination Eat Drink. We drop a new episode each Friday. Join me next week. We'll be in Vienna, Austria. My mouth is watering just thinking about the pastries. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by Ed Silla. Thank you, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. <laughs>